Fucks, this is episode 10 of the Becoming Human podcast, and I'm your host, Will Nelson. In this podcast, I unravel people's pursuit of fulfillment in hopes to better understand my own, because let's face it, we are all lost by varying degrees. In this episode, I got to sit down with Kyle Collins of Portland Moving Pictures and talk about his pursuit as a cinematographer, his experience with the houseless communities in his hometown, or in Portland, Oregon, the also the programs that work with the houseless and kind of unravel a little bit of their stories i've been really interested in the houseless situation especially seeing that it's on that it's becoming such a i don't want to say problem how do i say that um i guess it's up for debate Especially within my my area of uh, Seattle, with uh, people camping out in parks and stuff like that, and it's basically bringing the problem right in front of our nose. But I don't even want to call it a problem because it's a condition of life. It's a possibility that we all face, and I think that we all need to explore it a little bit more so we can kind of understand it. Because when it's the boogeyman in the dark. Our imagination tends to play, and when our imagination tends to play, we dehumanize, and ab- and people become abstractions and ideas and fear. And then when that happens, then real change and real understanding does not foster. So that's kind of where I felt. I felt I had a misunderstanding of what these groups of people were. And I wanted to explore it more. And in previous episodes, I explored people who were house, people who were in houseless situations, and I kind of got to understand a little bit about how they got there and what they're doing to get out of that situation or maintain that situation because it was different. Um, just one thing that I did not talk about uh, with Kyle, I really wish that I did, is the factor of drug abuse. Because I do understand that we all do encounter some households who obviously are, you know, drunk in the middle of the day. Um, there was a study and done. I'll put a link in the description to the study. Right now, I can't think of it. I'm just a blumbering idiot. But anyway, there was a study done, and it was with mice, with cocaine. And what they found was that the mice would keep going back to the cocaine and at the risk of their own body and ultimately their own demise. Um, well, what they found out was it was there was it was connected to whether they had stimulating things within their environment. So if they had a wheel to run on and if they had ramps to climb on, then they would not return to um, using the cocaine. They were not interested in the cocaine. And the mice who did not have those things were, would do the cocaine until their demise. And I would just like to draw, or I guess do a thought experiment. Sorry, having issues articulating this. I'd like to do a thought experiment where if you picture that you're homeless... And in the episode, Kyle talks about how after six months, um, it's unlikely that someone who is houseless does not come back on their own anyway, to their own accord, um, to, you know, being in a stable environment with their own house and conventional social uh, living standards. And you got to that point. 
and you were depraved, you were desperate, you, you need food, you're always worried about your safety, where to sleep, um, drugs would be an appealing escape. And so I think, I don't want to jump to the conclusion that drugs come first and houselessness comes second. I would like to consider the fact that it could be houselessness first and drugs second for the people that struggle with addiction who live on the streets. Because if I were to live on the streets, I would be like those rats without a hamster wheel to run on. Would you? Alright, I'm going to step out of my own way here and I'm going to let Kyle speak. Um, I got a couple more podcasts in the mix right now. Sorry it's been taking so long. Uh, my workload has gone through the roof with everything else. And it's hunting season. Come December, we'll be unleashed and I will inundate your ears with bliss. I promise. Here we go. filmmaker and have always been in the creative arts from crafts and, and as a child, uh, drawing, painting, um, sculpting in clay, uh, sculpture, and filmmaking has been, uh, sorry? No, go ahead. You're good. Video production filmmaking has been a, a, a real love of mine for 20 years mm -hmm. in the Portland market. I've been working and um, doing my own material for the last 10 years. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. But I've worked in the industry uh, mm -hmm. professionally mm -hmm. in Portland for 1996, I think, was oh. when I really got into it and went to school after I had already been working in the industry. I started off volunteering with local production. Oh, wow. And then, and then uh, fell in love with it and from the, from the ground up and then went to school. And is there like a, um, a big culture, a big community um, for film over in Portland? Because I mean, when there everyone is. thinks of film, they you know generally like Hollywood, Vancouver, and stuff like that. But um, there, there is ex there is a big one though. It's grown a lot in the last few years. Oh, in 1996, it was not. Mm -hmm. uh, there was very little local productions, commercial work, um, independent film. Mm -hmm. But uh, once, uh, of course, leverage was the first production that, that was done here that kind of was a regular job for a lot of people. And then, and that's all due to the tax uh, incentives that the state created 
uh, to bring out of state uh, to bring out of state productions here. Okay. Um, and of course, and then it was uh, Grimm and Portlandia, and you know, it's, it's grown a lot in the last five, six years. Oh wow! And how has it been for you trying to get into, I guess, becoming a filmmaker professionally? Well, like I have my 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 projects, which are my personal projects that mm-hmm. I fund. And I do them on my own and uh, on my own time schedule. And then occasionally I do come across a, a music video I'll produce and direct okay. or uh, uh, a commercial for a local, you know, a local business, uh-huh. a web commercial, a marketing video uh, for their website, that sort of thing. Very I, technically it's professional, I guess, because I mm-hmm. do get paid for it occasionally. Yeah. But, uh, Primarily, it's a labor of love that I do. Oh, tell me about it, man. That's pretty much what um, I battle a lot is whether or not I'm... I I seem to find that I spend more time doing things that are a labor of love, which I love, but, you know. Um, And I'm just interested because a lot of people that I meet, uh, especially people who grow up in, I guess, the labor industry where, you know, their parents or generation after generation um, basically is a middle-class um, person who specializes in some labor industry. And what they always tell me when I bring up the pursuit of arts, um, they always kind of strike it as an impossibility or something by luck or by chance where I'm finding that to be I guess a false idea. The more and more people that I talk to, and I just find it really interesting. Um, they're diving into that, I guess, because it's exploring that and getting a better idea for my own self and for the audience as well. Well, I have found video production sounds rather glamorous. It sounds mm-hmm. like movie making. Yeah, but. That only happens when the movie is finished and you go to the red carpet Mm -hmm. and then you're a filmmaker. Yeah. In the mud and the grit and the blood and the bolts and the nuts of it, it's a labor. And the camera people, the light, the grip, those are all unions. There's a a union uh, for every field, sound, light, camera, production union. Mm Mm-hmm. So it it is there is an art involved in the writing. Each discipline has its disciplines has its art, but it is a uh, it, it's a nuts and bolts. Mm-hmm. It could be laborious and monotonous, as just as other, I guess, industries. At times. Oh yeah, yeah. And that's oh, what, certainly. That's what I find with podcasting um, and also doing like. Uh, poetry writing and all of that stuff like it, it's the i guess the the creative the romantic side of it you know like um creating stories initially is something that a lot of people find like you know incredible but they don't really see the drag of editing and the long hours of self-denial and more editing <laughs> and stuff like that sure sure um you know there are a lot of people attempting it and working on it and pursuing it. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you see a movie at the theater and it's got this director's name and they get all of the credit for it. Yeah. I guarantee, guarantee you at that level, 
they aren't doing it by themselves, and they couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't see, you know, you don't see the the camera guy or the editor's name or the light guy and the, the crew and the whole thing mm-hmm. until the end of the movie when most people get up and walk out. Oh yes, the <laughs> you know the stars, of course, mm-hmm. and we call them that for some reason. <laughs> uh, get their names at the beginning, and then the uh, the people that really technically really make it happen mm-hmm. are at the end of the movie. The people who do all the heavy work, the the higher yeah. percentage, yeah, don't get any. I guess not are not as valued with screen time and stuff like that. I, I can even see that, like, relate to that in, um, I don't know, I've started getting, this is tangential, but I started getting into hunting a lot recently, and so I've watched um, a couple of documentaries and even some of the reality stuff trying to see if they, you know, give any tips or anything like that. And those camera guys do, like, 80% more work than them. They're carrying all this heavy gear and stuff like that, and you, you never see it, and it's never, it's just not valued. It seems disregarded, uh, in the entertainment field anyways. But, yeah. Um, well, I mean, yeah. the, the people, that is, the people who are in the industry, they have, of course, all this respect, and, and you know, cinematographers do get Oscar awards, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, um, it's, yeah, it's certainly not as glamorous. And I've actually joked about that on 16-hour shoots, mm-hmm. where you're standing in the you know, a forest or a cow field or a whatever god-awful place you're shooting at in the cold or in the heat, um, eating poorly. Yeah. And, and then we look at each other and kind of joke and like, oh, isn't the movie making glamorous? <laughs> yeah. No, oh, gosh. <laughs> you never, most people never see that reality of it. That. Oh, God. Um. And so I'm curious, how did uh, Portland Moving Pictures start exactly? That is, um, yeah, that's just the name of my personal uh, professional mm-hmm. and, and, and my work. <laughs> Portland Moving Pictures is a one-man operation. Yes, is me. But of course, again, I'm I'm the director and mm-hmm. writer and producer of my own material that I have a group of friends and associates and coworkers and people I've worked with over 20 years who, if I have a project, I create a project or mm-hmm. however it happens, I just reach out to the people that I want to work with, who I've worked with before, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. I can trust. That's basically how I operate with my content as well, because it's generally um, the need for resources or people fluctuate and, you know, from project to project and stuff like that, whether it's audio or otherwise. So the what I'm really curious about, though, is how you what is the um, invisible series? And what kind of mm-hmm. got you started on that? After the after the crash of two thousand nine, eight, seven, whatever you want to yeah, year whatever year you want to put to it, the, the, the recession, um, and watching the homeless population, or as it's preferred, the houseless population in Portland, uh, expand and grow and, and visibly become a, an issue. 
And just one afternoon, I was walking around town, old town, Chinatown of Portland, and Light to Dream is a nonprofit organization. It's a tent community, a tent city that uh, brings in about 90 people, maybe 50 people a night. Wow. To sleep there. Wow. Um, they have uh, they have the computer day. They have uh, resources. They do not take any money from their taxpayers. <laughs> they are self-funded. They pay their rent. They pay their electric bill. They pay their garbage, and they really hand out blankets and clothes and food to the population. And that was the first spark was that place. And then just down the street from there, you have Union Gospel Mission that has been there since 1929, helping uh, helping people on the streets. Up the street, you have the uh, Portland Rescue Mission that's been there since the early 70s. Salvation Army across the street has been there since the early 1930s. Down the street, you, uh, the Central City Concern has been around since the early 80s. The Sisters of the Road Cafe, another nonprofit that provides food, lunches, breakfasts to people on the street for low income. I mean, talking $2 for a lunch. Whoa. Fantastic food, all donated by local uh, businesses, funded by, um, by nonprofit resources, etc. There's a uh, network, a community that has been in Portland since, as I said, how the Sunshine Division was a, an organization started by the police in 1926. The police? Giving food boxes to those in need during the holiday. And they still survive today. They are still a police organization. Um, they have a nonprofit that runs it, but they, the police still take uh, food boxes to needy people, needy homes. Uh, every Christmas, every Thanksgiving to Christmas. Mm-hmm. So that was the initial, like, I, I just opened up my eyes during this time uh, to a documentary about the entire community of it. But it became too big of a project, that documentary, to try and cover all of these groups, because there are so many, would be impossible. Every yeah. single one of them is an independently could be documentary on their own. Mm-hmm. So the only resourceful thing I could do is a series of shorts, which makes this much more able to be consumed by the viewer in short blocks. Exactly. minutes each. And you actually explore a little more thoroughly, too, so it's not, um, what do you call it? It doesn't have the, it's not too abstract when you're using a small sample size from a large documentary. I yeah, I really want to shine a small light on each of these organizations because each one of them make up the the community of the houses that are you know, doing great work. And I'm trying to show success stories. I'm trying to show the other side of the cliche of the you know the the people who do this by choice. It's a lifestyle choice. You know, there are those, yes, but there are others who 
you know, you have a medical emergency and, you know, then your, your landlord raises your rent $500 in one month. I mean, some of those medical emergencies cost more than your own house. And if you don't have insurance or, yeah, cool. Um, there's been a, you know, in the last two years, large shift in the homeless population. People who used to have apartments are now finding themselves first time on the street. Oh, wow. Because they are doing no-cause evictions. All of these property owners and developers want these old houses. They used to rent a room for a house and a house for, let's say, $500 a month. And the landlord comes along and says, nope, everybody's out. I'm selling the house. Well, they don't have, like, rent control or anything like that? They just got really crappy, uh, wow, tenant laws? No rent control. Damn. That's awful. And Portland, uh, the mayor of Portland, uh, early this year, declared a state of emergency, and uh, a homeless state of emergency, and a housing state of emergency as well. And it was a 30-day notice. They could give somebody a 30-day notice and literally double your rent. Your rent was six, now it's 12. Whoa, that's... You got 30 days. No, that's wrong. And that's that creates a systemic problem, too, that's going to be really difficult to get out of. That's crazy. And has there been any um, public backlash? Like, is the community's taken a well, stand against that in any way? You know, it's... It became an emergency when the people on the streets are putting up tents in the park. Mm-hmm. They're urinating in the park. They're, you know, when the Pearl District begins to complain about homeless people in their yard or in their, you know, loitering in front of their business, this is not a new issue. This has been going on, obviously, as I said. These organizations have been here, in some cases, almost 100 years. Yes. Um, And, of course, the politics come and go and change things as funding is available or not. But Mm -hmm. literally, there are people wandering the streets wearing blankets um, and barefoot. There is that. And that is a lot of mental illness. That is also a lot of drug abuse. Yes. But there are others who are working a job and staying in those shelters because it's not enough. What they're paid is not enough. Or the hurdle of first month's rent, last month's rent, deposit, um, on and on and on, it becomes really restrictive on finding a place. When rents are climbing the way that they're climbing, and there is a, a, a lot, a lot of people that aren't able to uh, to make that transition. Exactly, and uh, they are sleeping in tents on the street. They, um, it seems that you call it rents and stuff like that do climb at, especially for what you were even mentioning too, at um, a exponentially quicker rate than income generated because, you know, when it comes to um, average pay and stuff like that, that that moves at a snail's pace on top of it. Um, And so you've noticed there's been a huge boom in the um, houseless population since the, uh, the last recession. So now we basically, before we had a problem, my understanding, uh, 
they closed the asylum, I, or they did the deinstitutionalization movement in the 80s, correct me if I'm wrong, and um, that created a huge uh, increase in our, ho our houseless populations because we weren't taking care of people with mental health issues anymore. And then, um, then there's also, you know, some houseless, or, so I think we had an increase in the houseless epidemic as a society at large after the fact. And the last, the previous recession has been causing even more of an issue in Portland now because of the, the rent problems and stuff like that and the difficulty in finding a job, basically. Like, you can evidently see that now more. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. Wow. And there are people down there wandering around, screaming at invisible helicopters, talking to themselves. Um, and the, the mental illness, mm -hmm. there's nowhere for them to go. There's no Nobody is... It, that, that's a complicated one. That's yeah, a really exactly. complicated one because there's very little for the mental health care. There's no place for them to go. Mm -hmm. They're not criminals, so they don't go to jail. They're not... And they wander around in circles. If they don't have family, friends, or, you know, I mean, these people are sick. Yeah. I mean, I can cite example after example of... And and this is this is another issue or on the same issue. Mm -hmm. It becomes difficult sometimes to tell if somebody acting like that because they haven't slept in three days because sleeping on the street is dangerous. Sleeping at night on the streets is really dangerous. Oh, so you gosh. see people sleeping during the day. Yeah, and they stay up at night oh. and. A lot of folks, I mean, I've had people tell me, it's like, if you didn't do drugs before you got out here on the streets, you might just start because the the inclination of instinct is to gather in groups. So, because there's safety in that. Yeah. So you gather with a few people and then, you know, again, it's dangerous. So anything to get you through the day or the night and, and drugs becomes that. But... If somebody hasn't slept for three days, they'll begin to give appearances of being mentally ill. Well, in fact, you are mentally ill if you haven't slept well. If you're not eating well, so your protein level is down, you're not eating well, you're not sleeping well, you'll begin to give the appearances of being mentally ill. It will look the same. And it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. I mean, if it's drugs, is it lack of sleep or is it mental illness? They all start to blend and look the same, and sometimes it's combinations of all of those things. Yes, because nothing's ever black and white, and I can definitely see how that can create, could possibly create a misrepresentation of it mainly being a mental illness factor. You know, these are yes for every for every one that I see now. The the summertime population of homelessness goes up mm -hmm. because there are travelers. Because there are so many resources in Portland for people, uh, they, you know, the the word on the street has always been: if you go hungry in Portland, you're an idiot, because there's so much resource for people. So you do get travelers up and down the I-5 corridor coming through Portland 
from San Francisco from, you know, they come up here north for the summer and then go back down south for the winter. And you can, at least I can, I can identify those. They travel in groups. They're usually young, uh, early twenties, late teens, uh, usually have dogs with them. Um, pit bulls, by the way, they stand out and they are clearly not from here. They are just sitting on the corner, playing the guitar, using drugs, uh, and maybe pick up some clothes and some food. And then when the weather turns, they all go back down to San Diego or wherever it is they're from. Whoa. That's interesting. The people who live here, the, the homeless who are living here, these people are from here or have been here for a long time. Oh. And the... I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. Well, um, there's an organization. My current episode, uh, number two, episode two of Invisible, is focused on an organization called Bridgetown. Since 2003, Bridgetown gathers underneath the Burnside Bridge every Thursday night. They're a church organization. Uh, no preaching involved. They're not spreading gospel. They are literally handing out sandwiches, coffee, popcorn. They play games, uh, checkers, chess, play cards. Uh, and they have an army of volunteers who help them do this every single Thursday night. Like clockwork. Really? Since, 2000, since 2003. Um, the main focus of what they do is is loving people. That's what they say. That's They face it. That we love people because people deserve it. They wash people's feet. They have haircutting stations where they will give away haircuts and, and beard uh, trims. Um, what else do they do? They mend clothes, clothes giveaways, uh, bicycle repairmen. Once a month, they bring in uh, medical and mental uh, aid. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as, uh, I think once a month they bring in a veterinarian for people's pets and all self-funded by their own means. And I, I've heard numbers as high as $800 every Thursday. Whoa. Now, they do this and hundreds of people show up to receive services. Sometimes 100, sometimes 200 or more. It is a permitted event. Yeah, you have a permit to do it every Thursday. And they're doing good work, and they're doing it not out of, you know, they're, not, they're teaching. It's a lot of high school and college kids and they're, who are, you know, Christian students who are being shown this as a, as a way of outreach and as a way to, uh, well, again, because it will matter. Yeah, you know the man. The, the man even you know the man that I interviewed, Zach, uh, even said it's love. Love is not owned by Christians. Love is not owned by Buddhists. Love just is, and we are trying to help people because people need help. Now, that's beautiful. What they're doing is incredibly valuable because what I have found is that when a person is is homeless, their self esteem begins to go and being treated as if you are dirt makes you feel like dirt which then begins a downward spiral 
you have a, a, a loss of a job, okay? A six-month hole in your resume. It's kind of hard to get a new job when you've got a six-month block in your resume or a six-month hole in your living situation, you know, your your uh, manager or property owners or whatever reference or, you know, where mm-hmm. six months or something. I've, I've heard six months on the street, you start to give up. Whoa. You start to give up. Yeah. They don't care anymore. Looks they, like the they, world's they, trying to come at you. And they're being treated like dirt. And again, your self-esteem goes even further into the gutter. And then, yeah, the loss of humanity I hear quite often from the organizers, from the executive directors, and, and from the people who have veterans of helping the homeless. And, and I hear that quote, loss of humanity. Once that happens, um, it's hard, even harder to come back. So what they're doing under the bridge by giving people a, a place to gather, to meet, to play a game of cards or a game of checkers with somebody who wants to talk with you, wants to hear your story, and maybe quite possibly can even help further. You know, That's a uh, powerful thing. It is. It really is. And, you know, boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, these are people out there doing it. And so what I've been exploring in the video series is talking to these organizers and high school kid volunteers who are, you know, just being exposed to this for the first time. Maybe they're from a small town in in northern Washington or southern Oregon or, and they've never seen this kind of homelessness. And as the director has said, he hopes that what they do there inspires these kids to go home and create something. Maybe that's just as simple as sitting down with a kid at the lunch table that no one ever talks to. Yeah. Or creating something in your community like like Night Strike. This old this Bridgetown organization, their event is called Night Strike each Thursday. Night Strike? And that's his goal. And okay. that's what they want to do. And they've actually just started uh this year, a second in Oklahoma, in I think Oklahoma City, called Night Light. Mm-hmm. Um, and they want to see this kind of outreach in other cities. I think um, it would be, is it, so it's, that definitely sounds like it's far more valuable to actually have the more or less the hands-on service approach. Um, service as in you're you're doing it you know for the love of another human or trying to help someone actually being there instills the humanity behind it instead of just throwing a dollar amount you know that's absolutely true sometimes just uh looking at this person in the eyes Mm -hmm. if you don't have any money if you don't have any money to give or you don't want to give any money don't disregard them like they're a, a leper or a or a disease. Yeah. Some human respect. Look them in the eye and say, "I'm sorry, I don't have anything for you today." Mm-hmm. That's fine. And maybe even, you know, do do what you will, but that is more helpful in some cases than giving them a dollar, because again, once people have lost hope. Then they don't care, and maybe they will smash your window and steal your wallet 
maybe they will because they've been treated like dirt and mental illness and lack of sleep and all these things. And, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, an extreme situation, people will do what they do and act out. Mm-hmm. But that loss of humanity and uh, being able to restore that in even the slightest way mm-hmm. is really valuable to the human condition. Especially in consideration with um, with all of us, I think all of us at some level can acknowledge that we that we that we strive for human connection, regardless of you know what that how we define that, and giving that to someone even in the smallest amount when they've been so deprived of it, because I imagine that they'd be deprived of it, especially given all of the uh, examples and stories that you've even shared so far. That's it makes it all the more valuable, you know. It's not watered down in a lot of ways, so it does. I can see the meaning behind that, and that's kind of what I was um, so fascinated in exploring up here, um, up north, is the stories that they have to offer, that people who are in a houseless situation have to offer, or who were at one point in time, because it's a novel aspect of life. And also, I believe that it's so underheard, and everyone wants to express themselves in one way or another. Yes. Um, You know, a a unique story that I heard from the organizer of Night Strike, he had said that one of his volunteers will ask on occasion, one of his volunteers will ask, well, how do I know who is a volunteer? You know, somebody who, their their job is to bring coffee to people. And he said, how do I know who is a volunteer and who is a guest, you know, who is a houseless person who is a volunteer? And, and the director said, that's, that's great. It, that's great. Just bring coffee to people. Regardless. If you just go sit and talk with people, they might be a volunteer, they might be a homeless person, you don't know, it doesn't matter. They invite them in and they treat them like you would a guest. They host them, they bring them coffee, they they talk, they chat, they play games mm-hmm. like you would anybody that comes into your house. Because sometimes, again, you know, it, it's a rarity on the street to have somebody, you know, touch your hand. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, uh, touch, or yeah. you know, you know, ha- having a haircut. I go down there and I watch the the subject of of my next episode of of episode two mm-hmm. is the man who volunteers and cuts hair. Oh, what? He works. He works for. Uh, he's a barber, professional hair cutter, and every Thursday he goes to four different nonprofit organizations and cuts, on average. 40 haircuts every day or every Thursday. Yeah. And um, he starts at 10 o'clock in the morning and he cuts hair till 10 o'clock at night for free for homeless people. And he is said, you know, in, in episode two, he's quoted as saying, he says, I, I can't help them with mental illness. I can't help them with their money needs. I can't help them, you know, but I can help them look good, look better. And when you look better, you can feel better, and you behave differently. Again, it's that losing the human connection and the condition mm-hmm. by being on the street too long. And, you know, it's a luxury to get your hair cut. Is it or isn't it? But for a person on the street who hasn't had that kind of attention, sometimes their hair is really bad. Their beards are really bad. And, and you know how you feel after you 
you know, get a new haircut or whatever. Yeah. It does worlds of good for mental health. Mm-hmm. So that's what he says. Can't help their their money issues or their drug problems. But I can help them look better and feel better and maybe they'll find a resume somewhere in their background and be able to go get a job. But, you know, that's what he can do. And that's what that, that's, that's his beautiful two cents that he gives really yeah see and i don't know i think that's so powerful too because you're you're giving yourself for for who you are i guess and you're sharing what you love you know even if if it's hair if you're a hairstylist and you know you enjoy that and you're also to share what you love and make you know a change that you're right it, it probably even vastly more meaningful I would imagine to someone who's houseless to get a haircut because some people if you don't get them all the time it's even more valuable that's wow yeah and that's just one person doing one thing and there are hundreds and thousands of people who are committed to doing what they can through these multiple organizations there's a newspaper down here called Street Roots. And mm-hmm. Street Roots is a future episode of mine for the Invisible series. But uh, Street Roots has been around for many years. And it's a, a homeless newspaper. Whoa. Stories. And, and they're part of a they're part of an international homeless newspaper movement. There are newspapers published for and by the homeless community in Portland. Uh, and they sell the newspapers on the street every Friday. It used to be a monthly paper, then it was a twice-monthly paper, and now it's a weekly, every Friday. And the vendors are homeless people who sell the newspaper for a dollar, but they buy the newspaper for a quarter. Oh, wow. That's really cool. And some folks who enjoy the newspaper, because it's a well-written paper, it, it is focused on issues surrounding the homeless in Portland. From a relative uh, perspective, by the sounds of it, too. Anyways. Mm-hmm. And some people will pay $2 for that paper. Some people pay $3 for that paper. They give to the vendor. Mm-hmm. If they know the situation, the vendor paid $0.25 cents for that, and they get to keep the best. Yeah. That is... I don't know how many vendors they have, but you'll see them all throughout the city from one side of the city to the other. And sometimes I buy two or three copies of it a week. Oh, whoa, really? Yeah. Heck yeah. You know, I'll I'll buy them and leave them in in, in a grocery store on the magazine rack. Oh, that's cool. At the the cashier, you know, where all the magazines are at, all these copies that I bought. Um, just trying to, you know, and, and that, that newspaper, Street Roots, they also publish a resource guide. And this is a resource guide in Washington County and Multnomah County for resources, uh, food banks, clothes banks, mental health resources, pet services, um, everything and anything somebody would need if they are new to the streets and they don't know the the way around. Here's the phone number for this and the address and the website and a description. And I think there's 
the maps of the city. Um, there's another organization, a uh, phone number called 211. I don't know how often they, how much work they get, but 211 is the same kind of resource bank for people can call and, uh, you know, if they're experiencing uh, homelessness or for the first time or whatever. There's just so much going on in the community, at least in Portland. And uh, I'm just trying to put a little bit of light on the good work that's being done by these people and the need Mm -hmm. to actually have low-income housing because all of these shelters, the, the, the shelter experience is not a good one for a lot of people. But a shelter does not take you off the street. It just takes you out of the visibility of the politicians who don't like the bad press. Uh, a shelter, a shelter, people need a home that they can afford. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's how you fix homelessness. Now, they used to have the the this 10-year program that started in 1994, and by 2004, clearly they had not fixed homelessness. And um, I don't know the name right offhand, but a man, sociologist and professor, had the idea that you know, if you give a person a home, a place to live, then they can get on their medications, mm-hmm. then they can go to their treatments, then they can, you know, restore, you know, the, the basics of, of safety and security within four walls that you can call your own and put your head down at night without, you know, being scared. Yeah. The the numbers and the money is always an issue. People always talk about the money. Where Where's the money? Where are we going to pay for these things? Well, it's now being done in Salt Lake City and to a greater extent in the state of Utah. They have almost eradicated homelessness, chronic homelessness Whoa. in Salt Lake City with a program called Housing First. Sounds pretty simple, but it's pretty revolutionary, really, because they did the math. And once the math was done, it was fiscally more responsible and humanitarianly, you know, socially more responsible to give somebody a home. Let's say you have 2,000 people living on the street, and every year the average homeless person costs the taxpayer and costs the city, let's say, $20,000 with emergency room visits and, and all of these things. And the math is out there. Every city has their own. In Los Angeles, it's more. In New York, it's more. So let's say $20,000 for 2,000 people every year. Well, they found it's cheaper to actually give this person, and when I say give, I mean they give them a care worker and they give them an apartment. Okay. And that apartment and that care worker only costs $15,000 a year. Whoa. Really? Now, you're saving $5,000 times 2,000 people. Now, again, this is a microcosm of of the bigger picture because, you know, it's hard to come by the real numbers. But... As I said, Salt Lake has almost completely eradicated and completely fixed the issue. I hate to call it a problem, but fixed the issue of chronic homelessness in the state and in the city. Now, that's obviously a Mormon city, and but the Mormons have always been very giving. Now, I'm trying to remember Medicine Hat Canada. 
is also now doing that housing first situation. So that's an actual saving money and helping people get off the streets. That's people need places where they can live when they can afford to live. That's how you fix homelessness. And it's proven to already obviously it's proven to be effective in at least those two conditions, right? In Medicine Hat Canada too, as well, I assume, correct? Yes, and yeah, that's and the so when people bring this up and um, are those is it brought up in the communities as possible solutions in Portland? Um, and are, what's the response to that in those in your community? Well, I have not heard from any of the powers that be. Mm -hmm. The there is talk in Portland of a of a new shelter. Which again is a band-aid. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. But but yeah. it is, you know, but it is important. Um, there is talk about you know more low-income housing and and making them, but I I don't see uh, any real wheels turning in that direction. Exactly. I hear a lot of talk. Sadly, more often than not, a lot of things are inflated with more talk than action especially in consideration with political um, issues, sure. it seems. Um, and that's another thing that I was going to bring up, too, and kind of touched on it a little bit before, but um, for everything that is going on right now between the um, shelters and the tent encampments and um, as well as, like, the, how would you say it? the service meetings, not service like religious service, but, you know, service where they're actually coming and interacting with people who are houseless and giving them stuff. Do you think those are being effective um, or there's or they're ineffective? More or less the um, tent encampments and the shelters. I understand that you said that they're like a Band-Aid. Um, so actually providing them a house, in your opinion, would be a, a more of a permanent fix? Well, of course. Yes. Of and, course. And you, but if you were to, um, and you were saying, so in Salt Lake, when they, um, the Housing First Project, when they give them that, and then they give them that sense of that place to live and that sense of security, there's nothing, th that's the problem, correct? You don't have to deal with anything on the um, mental or the uh, psychological side of things, right? Because like, that's what... Um, and I'm still not clear what you're asking. Someone was mentioning to me that um, if you rehabilitated someone who was houseless into a home with responsibilities and stuff like that, you would also need to give them life skills as well. Do you think that's incorrect? Well, many, many of these people have plenty of life skills. Yes. Many again, many of these people had a job mm -hmm. or had a, an apartment, and this is their first time living on the streets. Yeah. Now those people have life skills. My first episode of mm -hmm. Invisible that's posted at the website uh, PortlandMovingPictures.com. Um, that first episode is a story of a woman who had worked in San Francisco area, college educated, mm -hmm. agreed had a, a, a excuse me a, a computer science computer degree as well as a i think philosophy i think maybe but uh, was working for a subsidiary in the bay area of enron when enron fell 
her company fell. She had been making over $50,000 a year. She owned a car. She had a house. She took vacation every year. She was, and she went from, you know, $20 lunches to literally walking past fancy restaurants and looking for leftovers that had been left outside by the bus stop. Yes. Now, and how that happened, as it was explained in the, in the video, as she tells her story, she <laughs> she left a, a, a violent relationship. Mm-hmm. At the same time, lost that job. That job fell through. Oh, so God. she had a, a so she scrambled, got a part time job, and went back to school. And it wasn't enough with her. She had set herself up to live in this house, making this much money, and now you can't afford that anymore. And she went even further down the spiral and slept outside for the first time. Actually, she said she slept on the train going back and forth until they finally kicked her off because she didn't know what else to do and didn't know where to go and stole some, or well, took some money out of the fountain so she had something to eat. Like that bad. Her mother was a real estate agent and her mother died. So she lost her family. She lost a relationship, and it's a thin line between, you know, surviving and and, uh, thriving. Well, she survived, you know. And now she works, she's been reformed. Well, uh, that sounds bad. She moved to Portland with her then-girlfriend, now wife, Mm -hmm. and they they were helped by an organization called JOIN. JOIN will help you get over that hurdle of first month, last month. And we'll help you get into a housing situation, help you get into an apartment. And then through JOIN, you also have resources to reach out to the Central City Concern. Well, that Central City Concern is another institution here in Portland that has job programs. They have rehabilitation programs, education programs out there. So if somebody who had that kind of experience with Enron, this woman in my video is now working with uh, children with autism. Oh, wow. Really? So what I'm trying to do with this video series is to show the other side of the cliche and to show success stories and to show that people can have success stories and it's not as black and white as some would like it to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's really what I'm trying to do with this series is to show these organizations how they do what they do, why they do what they do, the people behind it, and the people that they help. Yeah, you know, uh, shining a spotlight on one or two, you know, and I've got so many episodes sitting in my hard drive that I hope to get to one day, and I'm averaging, well, I'm working on episode two, so mm-hmm. one every one every year, I hope. <laughs> yeah, year, one maybe two a year if I can. <laughs> and I look forward to seeing that episode too, because I did get to check out the first episode, and I really did like it. It in. Exactly what you're saying. Like I had to touch on the life skills things because uh, a constant thing that I feel like I have to explain to people is in my experience, which my experience, you know, it's, it's not very large, but in my journey so far, I've run into people who aren't necessarily the cliche of, you know, drug abuse or anything like that with homelessness. And so when people bring up the life skills things, it's like, well, you don't really understand because not everybody uh, either chooses this or not everybody is incapable of surviving. It's not necessarily just their fault. 
because it is it's all black and white or it's not all black and white it's mostly all grayscale and um it even was a harsh reminder for me when uh i got divorced two years ago and i was faced with going from a double income trying to pay like uh, $900 a month in rent to a single income, single father and trying to pay that same amount and I quickly got buried and I had to leave myself with mountains of debt that if I didn't have family, I would have been homeless. And I actually was couch surfing for a while in, in, until, and that was where I was approaching that line to where I was able to relating with some of um, with people in my life who have experienced um, being houseless. I was able to watch myself broach really close to that, and I thought I was going to uh, not come back. Like I could, how would I explain this? I could see what could what could have kept me there very easily, mm -hmm. and it, it's like we're all one step away from that in reality. Many people are one or two paychecks, and many of us are in that same. Day situation exactly well i do need to go right oh now. yes it is 1245 sorry <laughs> Kyle. if if you would like to do this again sometime uh if you need more or want more i do one absolutely thank you so much kyle and i really appreciate your time man it's been fun and i love getting to explore this topic i might be in the area within the next i don't know six months or something so we'll have to do one of these in person yeah absolutely and i'll do the same if i come up there absolutely take care kyle all right. Thank you. Is there um, anything else that you wanted to plug before you go? Uh, other than the, you know, PortlandMovingPictures.com, and for anybody looking for assistance, you know, street routes is a great place to start, uh, as well as possibly Central City Concern um, or that phone number, 211, if anybody needs anything. All right. Perfect. Thank you for your time, Kyle. You have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. All right, bye.